Uh, we're going to be in the letter of Titus one last time. Hopefully a special final treat here um, in Paul's epistle to Titus. Uh, let's read uh, those, those important words in Titus chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 11, that we've made much of in the last uh, month or so. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul writes, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we're so thankful to come here tonight, and we pray um, in this final message in this series that you'd continue to um, sink the truths of Titus into our hearts and our minds and cause us to be ever different and ever changed because of them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about grace. Grace that is active. Grace that saves us entirely. Grace that uh, causes us to be able to enter God's presence fully righteous in Christ and in, in Christ alone. We've been talking about grace that saves, and we've also, through the letter of Titus, been talking about grace that sanctifies. The grace that saves you also changes you, transforms you. And we've been talking about a grace of God that will have an influence on those around you. A grace that saves you, changes you, and causes you to be an influence on the world around you. And we see this in Titus, right? Uh, Paul centers all of this change that he wants to happen on the letter of Crete in the truths of the gospel. It's not just, hey, make yourself better people. It's, hey, do you know the gospel that you have believed and by which you are changed? He, he sinks into them the truths of the gospel, the richness of God's kindness, God's affection, God's mercy. This is what motivates and changes and transforms the Christian life because their eyes are not fixed on themselves, but their eyes are fixed on their Savior who has been gracious and merciful to them. Uh, one final lesson here tonight. I want to illustrate some of the truths that we've been talking about from Titus with a bit of a spiritual biography. So over the last uh, month or so, I've been reading a certain biography that I've really appreciated and grown from. And I wanted to share with you just a summary of this individual's life and kind of lessons that we can glean from his life. Um, he was a sailor turned slaver, turned surveyor, turned simple preacher, turned singer, turned sensation, turned uh, slavery fighter. All of you are wondering who in the world I'm talking about. I'm not sure. Maybe not. Uh, I am talking about John Newton himself. No, not the man who discovered gravity. I'm talking about John Newton, the former slave trader turned uh, slave uh, advocate, uh, slave fighter. Uh, I'm talking about John Newton, the famous uh, preacher in the 18th century. 
in the beginning of the 19th century. I'm talking about John Newton and maybe the way you know him, the one who uh, penned that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. That was John Newton. He had an amazing life. Matter of fact, trying to just kind of skim over it is a little bit difficult for me. So please be patient with me. It's a very interesting life, and I'll try to give you just a rough sketch of his life in two parts and also give you three lessons that you can attach to his life and take away with you. His life was not boring, though. His life had a purpose, and I'm praying has a purpose in your growth and in your sanctification as well. He said this of his life um, in a prayer to the Lord. What a striking proof is my history of the deceitfulness and desperate wickedness of the heart and of thy wonderful long-suffering patience and mercy. When John Newton thought about his life, he said, it is a striking proof of sin's evil and corruption and God's mercy. Those, those are the themes that Newton saw in his life. So let's examine it. We're, once again, I'm just going to kind of examine his life in two parts, trying to make it as simple as possible without just saying, this is John Newton's life. Uh, so in two parts, we're going to look at first his wicked days and then his worthwhile days, you could say. His wicked days on the high seas and then his pastoral days in... Uh, Olney and London. Those were the two parishes that he served. He was born, so I, just, a, just a warning, this is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. I'm just going to kind of uh, list a bunch of facts about John Newton, get you familiar with his life, and then we're going to kind of go from there. But uh, just a summary of his life. He was born in July 24th, 1725. That is about 50 years before the American Revolution. So, Put yourself there, if you, if you can, like in your mind's eye, uh, what that looked like. Horse and buggy, people. Horse and buggy. Uh, horses, mainly. Uh, he was born to uh, John and Elizabeth Newton. His father was an absent uh, sailor father who was rarely at home. His mother was faithful at home, even though she would die. Uh, of tuberculosis when he was six. She would be faithful in those years before she died. She taught him to read. Uh, as he would say in later days, as well as he ever learned to read, besides hard names, at age four. He was a, he was a reader by age four. He had memorized all the answers to Westminster Shorter uh, Catechism, and he had memorized other answers in a spiritual book written by Isaac Watts. He was brilliant, actually. He was, he was from a very early age, uh, very brilliant, especially in the use of language. And that would, of course, um, translate itself in his, his future in writing hymns and poetry. Um, but you will see in his life, the very brilliance that was used for so much good for God could also be used for great evil. He was an inventor of creative expressions. And I hope you all know what that means in the worst sense. Um, by age 10, after his mother had died, uh, uh, he, he, his mother had died when he was six, and by age ten, his father decided it was time to pull young John Newton out of school. Now, some of you guys are like, man, I wish my dad would decide me to pull me out of school at age ten. That'd be great. Uh, well, you might not actually like it when you hear about what happened to John Newton here. Uh, he pulled him from school and had him join him on the high seas. He learned to sail and he learned to sin with the best of them. He had a personal motto as a young man. It was, never deliberate. And basically, I think what this means is he had a, a personal maxim that he lived by, right? 
don't ever think about what you're about to do, otherwise you might not do it, right? Uh, he lived for the moment. Whatever seems good in the moment, I'm going to do. do. Whatever seems right to say in the moment, I'm going to say. That was who John Newton was. Never deliberate. Uh, He was uh, quickly becoming a very worthless sailor, even on his dad's ship. And he was a horrible influence on other sailors as well. Um, when he was age 17, there's kind of a, a cute little a glimmer of light in his ugly story of sailing. And that is when he met this uh, young woman named Mary Catlett. Um, her, her, her name was Mary, but she went by the name of Polly. He fell hopelessly in love with Polly. Uh, he actually would end up marrying Polly, spoiler alert. Um, but all throughout his days, he would have uh, consuming thoughts of Polly. And it's actually kind of funny, when you read the biography... Uh, Many people around him in his dying day were always asking, like, what did he see in Polly? <laughs> they just couldn't figure it out. She wasn't that cute. She wasn't that smart. Uh, but that's just this little side thing. Uh, but he loved Polly tremendously. He would think about her continually, even in the, the evil of his sin. Uh, some people suggest that uh, the thought of Polly even purified him and kept him from great evil. Uh, but Polly also distracted him. You know how that goes. Distracted him horribly. He was, he was already a worthless worker, and now he became even a more worthless worker. He was distracted in his uh, work and in his labor because he was constantly trying to be with Polly. Uh, matter of fact, this was his very problem, right? He couldn't actually pursue Polly because he had no means of employment, and he couldn't get any means of employment because he was too busy pursuing Polly. And actually, pursuing Polly would cause all sorts of problems in his life. Um, In 1744, um, while he was kind of roaming around Polly's house, I I can't quite remember why, but he was walking around Polly's house because he was hanging out with her for a while, um, just trying to get some air. It was getting a little exciting. Uh, he actually was caught and pressed into service by a, a British Royal Navy press gang. Um, they would go about and find young men. Usually they'd find them on the streets or they'd find them in a, a local pub and they would press them into service. And similar to the way the draft has worked in the United States, this is how they operated. And there was a war with France coming in a few months and so was, sailors were needed. Well, uh, Newton didn't really like getting press ganked. He didn't really like to work, frankly, at all. Um, so he quickly uh, became a nuisance to the entire Navy and to his captain. Sea uh, theme that will follow uh, in every single boat he was ever in. Uh, he, would be, he would be stripped of his rank and completely flogged and shamed and disgraced before all of his crew members. He had risen in several ranks by this time, but uh, he was shamed and stripped from his disobedience. What was his disobedience on board? Well, he was trying to escape the ship and go be with Polly once again. Guys, there's a lesson in this. There's a lesson in this somewhere. Um, 19, uh, sorry, 1745... Um, he got himself actually traded to a merchant vessel called the Pegasus. This was a merchant trading ship, uh, ship going down the western coast of As- Africa. They called it the Guinea Coast uh, because of the, the monetary unit in England, the Guinea, um, and that's what they made here. Um, he got himself traded, really. This was because he was such a terrible, a terrible sailor that they were just willing to trade him for anybody else but him. He, he soon... Uh, 
turned his new captain against him and had to quickly trade himself away and join a, another man in 1745. He joined a slave catcher based in Africa by the name of Amos Craw. He quickly alienated himself from Amos as well, from his rudeness and his profanity, and Amos's mistress, an African princess by the name of P.I. Uh, she hated, she hated um, uh, John Newton and made his life miserable. Well, when Amos was away, she treated him as lower than a slave. Uh, June, uh, John Newton would explain how he was at the, the, the very bottom of his life, a slave of slaves even. Um, matter of fact, in this time, in his great distress, he wrote to his father, begging his father for rescue. Once again, John Newton continued to get himself into trouble again and again, and he begged people in power around him to get him out. His situation actually did change. He was given a new post. It was it was a bit of a way away from uh, Amos Craw and his mistress. Um, he would actually... Uh, have a considerably better life in this new post. Matter of fact, this new position of catching slaves was so profitable to him that when his father actually did send a ship to save him, the Greyhound, John Newton almost said, nah, I'll stay right here. An interesting guy. He almost rejected the boat that rescued him, but then he decided to take it for two reasons. Number one, the captain of this Greyhound lied to John Newton saying, hey, your father has left you a great inheritance. You should go get it. And number two, you guessed it, Polly. Polly. That's right. <laughs> On the trip back to America, the Greyhound took a, a long route. It went uh, across the Atlantic to the Americas and then went up to Newfoundland. And then in 1748, a year later, the, the Greyhound finally uh, started a trip back to England and back to home. And a massive storm um, captured them. And, of course, they had spent so much time in America that their ship was uh, not as sturdy as it once was, a little waterlogged, some would say. And even the seasoned sailors were beginning to uh, cry out in terror and, and conclude that they would be sunk. Newton himself, who, once again, was very proficient in turning a blaspheme towards and against God, surprised himself by saying, Lord, have mercy on me, and even saying, what mercy can there be for me? Now, this would be a moment in Newton's life, March 21st of 1748, that he would commemorate every single day of his life from then on. Although it's kind of curious when you read um, Newton himself about this day, he doesn't actually say that it was the moment of his conversion. If anything, he became a full Christian in his mind much long afterwards. But you could say this was the beginning of John Newton's pursuit of grace. And what, what did he rely on? He had no friends, no spiritual uh, helpers around him. All he had was memory. Memory of the scriptures that his mother had poured into him. Memory of a God that was gracious and merciful, and he hoped would even be gracious and merciful to him. And when he returned England, he returned to England as a changed man. Or as his biography would say, a no longer a free man in sin. He couldn't sin. He still did sin. He still did a tremendous wicked things, uh, both in drink and language and girls and all of these things. But he could no longer do it with a clear conscience as he once was able to do. Now, as he arrived in England, a few surprising things happened. Number one, uh, maybe surprising, maybe not surprising at all. Uh, number one, he, he turned down a position to be a captain on a ship, concluding that he wasn't mature enough. 
So maybe God's growth was already active in him, and he accepted a position of being mate on a ship. And this is where things get a little bit hairy for John Newton. It was a slave ship called the Brown Low, uh, which was about to travel and collect uh, slaves off of the African coast again. And on this trip, of course, he would witness and perform himself terrible atrocities, atrocities against other human beings, uh, dehumanizing things that he would actually later use um, as evidence against the slave trade, um, brutality and punishments. They would, they would screw people's thumbs with this uh, thumb screw to cause excruciating pain uh, to punish them. And that was the easy, that was the, the kind thing to do. Sometimes whole, whole groups of slaves would be thrown overboard just to save some fresh water for other people. There is this uh, biting scene that he records, uh, whether it's from this trip or another trip, where this woman has this baby and they're on this long boat going to the slave boat and the baby will not stop crying. And one of the sailors yanks it from her hands, and throws it overboard. And this was all perfectly fine to John Newton, which draws into question a few things. What in the world is going on in his heart? Well, once again, he was a man of the times. Not many people saw problems with the slave trade at this time, but that doesn't excuse any of it at all. You can see that the grace of God was slowly working in his life. He would return, and then in uh, 1750, at age 25, he would be offered and accept uh, he would accept a position as captain on two different slave trip voyages. During this time, of course, he would run up and tell the good news to Polly and get married and engaged and married. Um, the two, oh, that was the very anticlimactic, right? <laughs> Sorry, I don't have enough time. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a cute story. But uh, he had two slave voyages, a one from 1750 to 1751, and then another one from 1752 to 1754. He was captain of both. Now, admittedly, uh, both of these voyages, um, him as captain, he was slightly more humane than typical captains were. But for the most part, Either it was his crew or himself, they still did evil things. Uh, There is one account that he he records, uh, well, not really an account, but just a description of the slave trade itself. Newton's big argument later against the slave trade was it made animals of people. It made uh, made Africans into animals in our eyes, and it made us into animals in the way we treated them, and them into animals in the way they responded to us. It made men made in the image of God on both sides into animals. Once again, the the punishments were brutal. The sexual abuses on board were brutal brutal against the woman, the women. The separations of families without consciences were brutal. Um, and, and at some point, and, and once again, it's, it's kind of unclear, but he appears to be a Christian in, in some stretch at this point. And these would be days that he would look back on in his life with the deepest of regrets and sorrows. How could he be a Christian and treat someone else like this? Well, he would leave the slave trade in about uh, in 1754, and believe it or not, he would leave it not for moral reasons, but for health reasons. He had a seizure, and at that point, he found a new job as a surveyor of tides. Think, think a uh, uh, tax collector. He would tax the boats that came in. But this allowed him to live and get married to Polly, um, and to stay at home and not be gone for weeks and months and even years on end. So, uh, what's, what's the purpose of this little sketch of John Newton's life that I've already written for you? 
of his early days. Well, once again, let me give you uh, the first of three lessons to take away from the life of John Newton. Uh, Lesson number one, God's grace is a grace that is greater than all our sins. God's grace is a grace that is greater than all our sins. I love that Richard Sibbs quote, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Newton knew that. Newton knew that for sure. Not just for his sins before Christ, but his continual problem with sins even after Christ and his slow growth and slow sanctification after Christ. If, if you were to ask Newton about the two themes of his life, he would say, the two themes of my life are mercy and providence. He was someone who described himself as exceedingly vile in his youth. And he was particularly sinful in how he would sin so much against the providence of God. He he saw countless, he would record countless protections, countless providences. That whole whole moment where he escapes off off of that island in Africa where he is kept, uh, he was kept by Amos Crow and and his uh, mistress. That was a marvelous moment of providence. The ship just happened to be there and just happened to ask for John Newton and John Newton happened to be known by the person that they were asking. He saw countless deliverances as well. There were times when others died and he didn't. He saw all of these things. And yet, especially in his youth, it seems as though he used these opportunities of escape, like escaping from one ship to the next, or so on. He used these opportunities of escape, these actions of general kindness from God, as platforms to jump into a deeper hole of his own making. John Newton knew how to sin. And he sometimes made his own problems worse by his laziness and his worthlessness. Even in his conversion, he was a sin. He saw himself as a great sinner in need of great grace. He would say this about his days of conversion later. And this is why he perhaps doesn't totally think those were his, his, his moments of conversion on that ship. But he says this, I acknowledge the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was past, but depended chiefly upon my own resolution to do better for the time to come. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer till a considerable time afterwards, right? He, he, he trusted in God's forgiveness of sin in his past, but his whole life, maybe an immature believer, his whole life was just trying to do better in his own will in the future. He was a picture of someone who comes to God for grace, though. He is a picture of this lesson that we should learn. God's grace is greater than all of our sin, right? When we come to Christ in salvation and in faith and in, and in pleas for mercy and grace, we come to God with nothing but our sin. We saw that in, in, in Titus over and over again. And we see it in John Newton. But, but here, let's, let's, let's do this uh, a second spiritual lesson that we can learn from John Newton really quick. Not only is God's grace greater than all of our sins, but God's grace that sanctify us doesn't sanctify us overnight. God's grace that sanctifies us doesn't happen in one conversion moment. Maybe you've experienced this in your life, right? You confess your sins, you believe in Jesus Christ, and you have a new love for God, new faith in God, but you still have sin in your life. God's saving grace that sanctifies 
doesn't sanctify overnight. We see this in John Newton as well. It was a slow sanctification process. A lot of that was because John Newton had no friends around him. And a part of it is because sanctification is slow in a heart that has been so used to making a habit of sin. Sanctification is exceedingly slow. His final words, his, 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 almost his final words that he ever said in his life was, I am a great sinner. Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And, and for this, just look over at Titus, Titus 2, 14. Notice he says, he says this, uh, Jesus gave himself uh, for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness. Notice. In Christ's sacrifice for sin, he redeems us totally. Uh, uh, slave languages, purchases us from the slave box. He, he totally claims us as his own. He removes the punishment and the guilt of sin from our shoulders by placing it on himself, and he redeems us from sin totally. The, the legal requirement of sin has been paid in full. But notice this, his work does not stop at this. He also is purifying for himself a people for his own possession. He's purifying, right? There is a a process that believers enter in, and that is what we see in John Newton. A purifying process that doesn't happen overnight. How does this process happen? It happens from beholding Christ day after day, repenting of sin day after day, clinging to Christ day after day, turning to newness of life day after day. This is what John Newton said. For him, he would say at the end of his life, for him to live is Christ. He, could, he, he, he was totally focused on Christ. Let's turn now to the last, uh, the second half of John Newton's life. We'll call this his pastoral days in Olney and London. Those are two uh, places where churches were. He began to desire pastoral ministry even on the slave ship. Interesting. And he returned to his uh, to seek out a career that would keep him closer to Polly, not because he abhorred the slave trade, but because he probably mainly wanted to be close to Polly, and also he didn't want to have to uh, leave home so much. He was, however, um, in his early pursuits of religion, very uh, excited. He was known as the Little Whitfield because he would follow uh, George Whitfield, who was preaching in England uh, around this time. He would follow him everywhere. Matter of fact, this kind of turned the Church of England, the Anglican Church, kind of against uh, John Newton for a while. They saw him as one of those uh, uh, eccentric types, excitable types, uh, one of those people that thought religion meant you got excited. No comment. <laughs> He would, be, he would be kind of rebuffed and uh, 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 not allowed into a pastorate in the Church of England for 10 years of his life. It wouldn't be till 1764 that he'd finally get a pastorate, and that in a very small, a small town in Olney, which is uh, just north of England, or sorry, north of London, don't know my geography, England is the whole thing. Uh, he would remain there for 16 years. He, he would go there when he was 39 years old, so I've still got time. Uh, he would remain there for 16 years until 1780. He would write numerous letters and books and hymns while he was there. His, his fame would spread from there. He would write a, uh, uh, this is weird. I think this is weird. Uh, but, uh, it was really cool back then. Uh, it, it was You write a biography about, an autobiography about yourself, but you write it anonymously. 
All right, so he wrote an authentic narrative of a really long other title, uh, but that was written in 1764, This and, and it was no secret about who he was talking about, so it really wasn't uh, anonymous. Uh, so, yeah, once again, that was kind of their thing. Um, he also wrote a, a numerous hymns. Uh, it was called The Only Hymnal in 1779, uh, um, Pauline, he would never actually have any kids of their own, but they'd adopt two of her relatives, of one of whom would die sadly after after a short period of living with them. He uh, developed a very famous friendship here in this in this place with the the, the English poet William Cooper. There's a there's a beautiful little picture of their friendship in that they were kind of backdoor neighbors. They were. They could see each other's house, but they'd have to cross another neighbor's uh, yard to get to each other through the back door. And they'd actually pay like a yearly fee so that they could see and just easily cross into each other's house because that's how close of friends they were. Um, but William Cooper had a lot of uh, problems with depression and anxiety and worry. Uh, matter of fact, it's a, an amazing story. The the first day that the famous hymn "Amazing Grace" was ever sung. In the, the church was the last day that William Cooper ever set foot in that church because he was convinced that God was angry at him. Uh, but we need to go on. In 1780, he would move to London, uh, a church named St. Mary Woolnoth. Uh, he would serve there until he died. Um, there's various reasons why he had to leave. Um, uh, there were some uh, growing resentments against him at the other congregation. Um, it would also lead to his spread of fame, obviously, from London, a much bigger pulpit. Um, the church would grow um, incredibly. He would mainly, it seems like, be known in these years, though, for all of his letters. He, think about this, uh, in his life and after his life, uh, published, uh, of his letters, 1,000 letters. And, and people loved them. They were like heirlooms that you'd hang on to and pass around. Uh, New Testament, perhaps, is how it would be paralleled. But these letters were glorious, practical theology. He would answer personal questions again and again. Even when, by the end of his days, he couldn't see anymore, he would still uh, write letters by the help of his his adopted daughter, Betsy. Most significantly, here in London, he was a great influence to the the great abolitionist William Wilberforce, who was a minister in the House of Commons. In 1785, um, their friendship would begin with a secret message. Uh, William Wilberforce was interested in spiritual things. He had been recently elected to the House of Commons and had used most of his time mainly to to gamble and waste his life. But his life was in spiritual turmoil, and he was troubled by all sorts of things spiritually, and he was beginning to wonder if he should retire from politics and pursue a pastor. John Newton, in a very uh, different answer than perhaps what William Wilberforce, the, the famous articulator of law, uh, would have gotten from any other pastor advice. Uh, John Newton urged William Wilberforce to remain in politics and not uh, resign. He saw William Wilberforce's work is not yet done. In fact, this was just the beginning of the good things that William Wilberforce would do. In 1787, uh, William Wilberforce would um, set himself on the abolition of the slave trade. This would, of course, cause him to lose numerous friendships, the only friendship being John Newton's for a while, it would seem. In 1788, 
1788, uh, decades after John Newton himself uh, left the slave trade, he finally po- publicly came out and condemned the slave trade. Uh, people uh, speculate that he was actually influential in um, in starting William Wilberforce off on the abolition of the slave trade, but it wasn't till after William Wilberforce set himself against the trade that John Newton also did as well. And he writes this very gripping, very sobering account in Thoughts Concerning the African Slave Trade um, that, that just are memories, really, of all the horrors that he had witnessed and heard of, uh, horrible things. Um, the abolition of the slave trade actually wouldn't come until 1807. And, of course, all of you are taking notes about all these years, so you know exactly that that's, that's 10 years after the actual activities start. For 10 years, William Wilberforce is fighting for the abolition of the slave trade, and nothing happens. He loses one vote that was very discouraging to him, and he even thought about giving up the whole thing, but John Newton encouraged him to continue. Matter of fact, John Newton himself would die later on in December 21st of 1807. He would die uh, 82 years old, barely able to see at all. He would only hear about the political victory uh, just a few months beforehand, before he would breathe his last. Uh, Actually, when you think about it, uh, these final years of John Newton serving and helping William Wilberforce were bitter years as well for him. It was in 1788, many years before, that Polly would die. It's a very sad story of of her dying of cancer as well. And that's, that's kind of the life of John Newton. Gripped in all sorts of activity, gripped in all sorts of work, but a manifestation of God's grace. And this leads us to our, our final spiritual lesson that I want to kind of bring out here out of the story of John Newton. And it's simply this. God's patience towards you should shape your patience towards others. Or maybe even say it even stronger. God's patience towards you must be seen in your patience towards others. God's patience towards you is proved in your patience towards others. It's demonstrated. Your patience towards others is because you are very keenly aware of God's patience towards you. Once again, returning to Titus, we've seen this, right? Uh, Paul seeking to uh, uh, strengthen the church for godliness roots all of his teaching in the character of God and what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, right? I want you to be gripped by godliness because you are gripped by your God. That's what Paul says. Remember the grace and mercy of the gospel daily. Remember, as Titus 3.3 said, that you yourself were once foolish, disobedient. But, in verse 4, the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, and in that way he saved you. I would say, uh, John Newton never got over the patience that God showed him in saving him. God, uh, John Newton never got over the grace and the mercy of God given to him. John Newton, to his dying day, was the, that African blasphemer who should not have received God's grace. And it made him 
into the minister that he was and into the loving, caring man that he was. As a matter of fact, in general, you see this. His pastorate was known and marked by a love for people. All shapes and sizes. The, 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 the account of William Wilberforce, of course, is an impressive account of, of one man who came to him because he knew John Newton cared. But this is how John Newton treated all people in his life. He wasn't just for the William Coopers or the William uh, Wilberforces. He was also for the whoevers and the commoners. He, he was for everyone. And, and one of the evidences of this was just in how he so patiently and kindly answered every single letter that was ever sent to him. He was particularly gracious towards the young people in his life. People would say that he was a great youth pastor. He started a children's ministry in the, the church of Olney very early on that grew very quickly. He was personable. He cared about people. This actually led him to be very careful and plain in how he explained theology and also gave him a burden to help the people understand theology as well. How did he do that? He wrote hymns. Nobody was writing hymns in his day. But he wrote hymns, a lot of them, to help the people understand the truths about God that they were learning. Matter of fact, sometimes he would write a hymn with his sermon to help sink the truths of that sermon into the hearts and minds of the people. He had endless time for people, hurting people in his life. Why? Because he knew a God who had endless patience towards and he was keenly aware of that to the very end of his life. He would write his own tombstone, which is a little weird, I admit, but maybe they used to do this when they were old. Uh, it, it said this, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. I didn't touch on this. But that was John Newton, right? He used all of his brilliance in his younger days to make up creative songs to blaspheme the name of God and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he himself was very aware that he did not deserve any of the mercies of his God. The mercy of sparing him and the mercy of calling him to a ministry. When he saw himself, he didn't see himself as a great gift to the church, a writer of glorious hymns like Amazing Grace, he saw himself mainly as a great picture of the wondrous patience of God. And I'll just ask you a question. Would that also change your life if you viewed your life through the lens of the great mercy of God? That fueled his love, that fueled his work, and it could fuel yours as well. My favorite part of the Newton story is, is how his life was instrumental in patiently uh, caring for the people around him. Obviously, the account of William Wilberforce, he is a, a force of grace and influence to people. But I love the story of William uh, Cooper. John Newton was a friend with patience towards the weak and needy. Once again, going back to that little, little town of Olney, uh, John Newton would always say that their friendship was never one-sided. He actually enjoyed Cooper's friendship a lot. William Cooper was a brilliant poet, a very brilliant poet. Um, 
He, he, he spurred Newton on to write hymns like never before. They were backyard friends. There is this sweet story of him writing a letter to William Cooper, one of the final letters he would ever write, and he says, I am so eager for heaven, and I pray that we will be neighbors in heaven as well. That's kind of the way grace works, though. Uh, grace uh, causes you to see the benefits and the blessings of others in your life, and not the setbacks, not the blights. Well, John Newton was very gracious, and, and William Cooper was not an easy sort. Their friendship obviously was very productive. We could talk about Amazing Grace. It wasn't actually the most famous hymn in the hymn book that they wrote together in 1779. There were 348 hymns together between the two of them. John Newton wrote 281 of them. Wow. He was, he was, he was a machine at writing hymns. And actually, his biographer is very plain. Most of them were rightly forgotten. But uh, he was a machine. He wrote uh, great hymns that you also know, like Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, or How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Um, that was in their collaboration in this hymn book. But actually, the, the publication of this hymn book would be delayed. Uh, delayed a long time. It would be delayed by... How long is that? Six years by uh, William Cooper's descent into, once again, depression. I mean, do you have any friends like that who just kind of derail your getting things done with their personal problems? Are you a friend like that? Uh, maybe not. Uh, too much. Um, he, he had many reasons for his depression. Uh, it was mainly his disposition. He had a weakness all of his life. He had a very opposite life. This is William Cooper's to John Newton. He kind of had everything handed to him. And John uh, Newton had, had to work for a lot of things. Um, it's interesting. Um, William Cooper could feel the, the major descent that was coming on him just in 1773, actually, that evening, as he felt the, 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 the madness and, as he would describe, the darkness coming on. Um, that would cause him great hallucinations and terrible dreams. He would actually write a very famous poem called God's, uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And then, of course, he would descend into terrible, terrible depression that would actually uh, accumulate in attempt at suicide. John Newton would intervene, um, seeing William Cooper in his own blood in his house at one point. John Newton would bring him over to his house and keep him with him for over and up to a year. John Newton would take uh, the responsibilities of leading not only his own house, but also the house of the Coopers household. And then the point here is simple. Uh, William Cooper was never a very strong individual. William Cooper was, what you would say, a leech. He needed John Newton in his life to keep buoyant. Uh, many people would say uh, William Cooper would not have been the William Cooper he was without John Newton. And that was because John Newton was gracious and kind and patient. And Cooper's depression wasn't always easy. He would once say of it, uh, uh, Cooper's depression... Um, is mysterious, a great trial to me, but I hope I can learn, though I am a slow scholar, to silence all vain reasonings and unbelieving complaints with the consideration of the Lord's sovereignty, wisdom, and love. Even when William Cooper was taking up so much time, John Newton's continual thought was, what is the Lord wanting to teach me. How is he wanting to make me a better minister?
What if you could respond so? What if you? How much more? How much more should we respond to such lesser trials with such greater eagerness? We could respond in simple ways like this. Here's three questions to ask yourself when difficulties arise that should fuel patience towards others in your life. Three questions that you can ask about yourself when difficult people are in your life. Number one, who is my God above in all of this? Question number two, who has God been to me despite of who all I am? And question number three, what is God seeking to train in me through this relationship with this person? Who is God above all this? Who has God been to me despite of all I am? And what is God seeking to do in me through all of this? That's the life and the lessons of John Newton. It's encouraging to me. Biographies always are, and I pray and hope it's encouraging to you. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your love and for your grace and for your kindness and for your patience. And we pray that you would use this life as it echoes back on the truth of your word to encourage our hearts in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.